Hello and welcome to the 47th edition of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. We're also joined by our good friend, Michael Gray. And tonight, this week we're talking about 1994, which was one of the you know most talked about. I know we keep saying it's the most talked about Oscar years, but this really is because in the last couple of decades, um, Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption have really emerged as the internet generations like Citizen Kane and Vertigo, in my opinion. They've, <clears throat> Shawshank Redemption is like huge on, on the IMDb list of greatest films of all time. I'm not sure where it sits, but it's like a number one or something. I mean, it's really high up there. And, uh, and uh, Pulp Fiction is Pulp Fiction. You know, Quentin Tarantino is a god, and the reason he's a god is because he made Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and you, you can't have a conversation about Pulp Fiction without... Uh, you know, hearing from his many fans and, and, you know, people think it's a masterpiece and, and it's affected a lot of people over the years and influenced um, generations of filmmakers and um, fans. So, you know, the interesting thing about Shawshank and The Godfather trading places between one and two for so many years, they not only got a lot of number one votes, but the, but the volume of votes that they got is like a million votes. And if you look at some of the other... Um, Movies like, for instance, Casablanca only has 277,000 people voting for it and to get it into the top 20. Meanwhile, Shawshank Redemption has over a million, and The Godfather has like 800,000. Mm. So once you get this, this groundswell of support behind you, it's almost like these teams, these armies, these armies of IMDb voters fighting to get to keep their movie in number one place. Right. How funny. That's like our poll. We had this Best Actress poll this week, and mm-hmm. we had... Um, um, you know, Kate Blanchett at the top and, and uh, Sandra Bullock following very close behind. And then all of a sudden, the Meryl Streep fans came along <laughs> and they boosted Meryl Streep to number one. <laughs> it's like, I know, it's I'm going to age backwards 20 years before Meryl Streep wins for <laughs> August of Such County. There's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I will age backwards 20 years before that happens. And I hope it's like well, you've seen the movie. No, you I haven't seen, seen it, but oh, there's oh, just no know. chance she's going to win. No chance. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be a total fluke, like 1%. But it's just funny that the fans love her so much, they just pick Meryl Streep, and then there, so she's right on top. Right. It's like when you go to the Random House Top 100 Novels list, they have the, the, the expert selected list, and right next to it is the, is the reader votes. And the reader votes are all... Uh, the, the ballots have been stuffed with L. Ron Hubbard fans oh, and um, Ayn Rand fans. It's oh, like, God, okay, you're on. kidding. Really? L. Ron yeah, Hubbard? Oh, no. It makes you not want to take any of these reader polls at all seriously. Oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> The same kind of thing on, on Amazon.com, um, <clears throat> when you find the customer reviews, uh, you can always, if any, any movie, or I'm sorry, if any book has any sort of political slant to it all, to it at all it's going to have a, a mediocre uh, rating because Republicans or Democrats are going to come out and vote against it if, it, if it's the opposite ide- ideology of what they believe in. The same right. thing about any kind of book about evolution or Darwinism or anything like that. Those, no matter how good the book is, it's going to be shot down by a bunch of people who just basically don't believe in that. Uh, philosophy, you know, so you can't really rely on those numbers because they're too polarizing. Right. Right. It's true. But nonetheless, if you ran a poll now and you asked people what their favorite um, best picture nominees that never won best picture would be, and and I can tell you Shawshank and Pulp Fiction would be way, way, way at the top of the list. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the film that won was Forrest Gump, and it was the movie of the time it steamrolled through the Oscars. No other film had even the slightest chance, I remember, because I lived through it. I know I keep saying that, but it's true. And uh, the Forrest Gump was the movie. It was the movie. So, And are we really going from... Tom Hanks winning last year from Philadelphia to Tom Hanks winning again for fucking Forrest Gump? I know. Maybe. Sadly, yes. He won two (laughs) years in a row? Exactly, right. God, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. It did really show his range, though. You have to admit, that's 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 an amazing um, difference in in type of characters. It's not like you can't ever say that Tom Tom Hanks is playing himself in either of those movies. He's absolutely playing somebody... It's totally different. And he's also in the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. yeah. And right? No, you're thinking no, of Green Mile. Oh, no, I was Green Mile. Sorry, sorry Green about Mile. that. Yeah. 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 Sorry about so, that. Edit, edit that out. Oh, all of your, <laughs> all the Shawshank fans are coming after you now. <laughs> no, now I'm going to be killed. So the thing about his range is that he already established his range when he did Big before he did... Um, yeah. He did Philadelphia, and I think his turn in Big is ten times better than it is in Forrest Gump. He's basically playing a child in both cases, but he's so much better, I think, in Big. I found him. I just I rewatched Forrest Gump for the first time in a in a long time, and I wanted to 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 really like it because I know that it's, there's been backlash against it, partly because of the perception that it's it's um, a, a conservative film. But it just he irritated the crap out of me in this movie. Part of it is because. The lines and and the characterization has just become so much a part of popular culture that it's mm-hmm. it's almost a cliche all by itself. But well, still, Jenny. I also find it sort of intrinsically <laughs> insulting when somebody tries to to imitate a voice of a mentally disadvantaged person or a mentally challenged person. When you try yes. to imitate that voice, it's automatically insulting and and borderline um, politically incorrect to 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 sound like that. And he didn't do that in Big. He just sounded exuberant and sounded childlike. Mm-hmm. He did, but in Gump, he actually sounds like he, you know, he's been hit in the head with a, a brick. Or something. <laughs> well, I have to be the one who stands up for Forrest Gump. I'm afraid because not, Go for it. I don't think it's a great movie. I, I, although Emma watched it and cried, and then made me turn it back on and watch it over again with her. Um, but does that make you guys feel guilty? I hope it does. No, no, <laughs> no not at all, because I like Forrest Gump, joking. too. Overall, I like the movie, no, no, and no, actually kidding, my appreciation for Forrest Gump um, was re-elevated after I saw Benjamin Button and after I saw what the screenwriter, the, the screenwriters, I saw the, the themes, the similarity and themes between those two movies. Well, I, what I you love know, about I like it is... Wait, can I just let me just finish, Michael, and then you can huh? talk about it, okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I just want to say one thing about Tom Hanks, which is first of all, I love. I, I, there's a lot of it I love. I love uh, Robin Wright, and I love um, what's his name with the, with no legs. Uh, Gary Sinise, I thought was incredible as Lieutenant Dan. But Tom Hanks is such an amazing actor. He does something in Captain Phillips in the last. 15 minutes of Captain Phillips that reminds you what a great actor he is. And he does the same thing in Forrest Gump when he meets his son for the first time and his son comes out and, and Jenny, and he asks, you know, is he, is he stupid? Is he stupid like me? Is he stupid Uh, or uh. smart or whatever? And that was just one of those, it just grabs your heart moments. And he does that same thing in Captain Phillips in that way of like, he just takes your breath away in these moments as an actor. This is my very good friend, Mr. Gump. Can you say hi to him? Hello, Mr. Gump. Hello. Oh, can I go watch TV now? Yes, you can. Just keep it up. You're a mama, Jenny. I'm a mama. His name's Forrest. Like me. 
I named him after his daddy. He got a daddy named Forrest, too? You're his daddy, Forrest. Look at me. Look at me, Forrest. There's nothing you need to do, okay? You didn't do anything wrong. Okay? Isn't he beautiful? He's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Is he smart? He's very smart. He's one of the smartest in his class. Yeah, it's okay. Go talk to him. Forrest Gump really saved it for me. I could have done without Sally Field and the hokum, and I don't like that it's a. It was taken as a metaphor for America and the baby boomers, and you know that he was showing up. I mean, the truth is, is the is Forrest Gump. People gave a pass to, and they gave it best picture, but they're not willing to do the same thing with the Butler, which is really very similar to Forrest Gump in the way that it's sort of surreal telling of history you know mm-hmm. uh, and man shows that's up a every- really i hadn't even thought of that but that's so true yeah, yeah you know one so- thing about tom tang tom hanks that he does in every movie but he does it differently in every movie he's got sort of a gulp he, he does sort of a gulp before he says a line really an emotional line like he has to swallow before he can say it and that always gets to me he does it in a but it's not it's not like a tick that he does or a, or a standard quirk that he pulls out of his hat all the time because he does he does, he does variations on it but he, he did it I, he did it in uh, all the movies that you're talking he did it in Philadelphia and he did it in big and he did, he does it in uh, in in, uh, in what we're talking about um, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, yeah, right. I almost said Pulp Fiction. Man, what's wrong with me tonight? Oh, <laughs> but, we, um, we know what's but, wrong um, with you. We just won't say. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, 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 that hesitance before he says a line where he has to think and, and, and swallow hard before he can spit the line out always, always tears my heart out. Yeah. I never noticed that about him. I never noticed yeah. that he does that. Yeah. So did you like Forrest Gump, Michael? You know, when I first saw the movie, I liked the movie when I first saw it. No, it's not one of those movies that I want to see again and again. You know, the first time was enough for me. You know, I I, I liked his performance. I thought it was really great. Um, but I kind of got bored with him being at every social event that was going on during his life. You know, he was at the um, um, that big event when they were at the um, at the Washington Mall, and he meets mm-hmm. um, the girl. You know, and he was there, and he was behind president you know they had the image of the president he was at all these big events and it just kind of like i don't know if they wanted to do that for effect because it took place from the 40s up through the 60s through a violent through a um, crucial period in american history but it kind of got bored boring for me at certain points i didn't find it that interesting even but is though- it 
It is definitely a gimmick, but I think because it's an it's an obvious gimmick that I mean we're supposed to accept it as the gimmick of the movie, and and once you get past the fact that that's what they're going to be doing, then it's almost like what 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 can what else can they do with this? How many other variations can they spin on this? And to me, it became sort of a, it was it was it was fun for that reason because of all the different ways they found to to put him into unlikely situations. Yeah, well, yeah. I, and, 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 well, I kind of felt that they they it was the new um, film. Um, the um, splicing, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was new, so they wanted to use it. And I think they kind of overdone it at certain air points in the film. Mm-hmm. And well, that's Zemeckis, right? Because he's a special effects pioneer. He was known for that. Yeah. And he did that in uh, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, putting yeah. real people in situations where they could not possibly have existed. And he then he just spun that into doing it with reality on top of reality. Yeah, so he was having way too much fun with that special effect. The thing that I resent about it, I continue to hate, is is this idea of dumb America succeeding at all odds. We're so dumb, but we just mm-hmm. sort of stumble forward right. anyway. You know, that's the thing about it that I didn't like. And I, you know, but I do like. I do have to admit, I fall for the love story, and I fall for little Forrest with his little legs and running. Haley Joel Osment. Run, Forrest, run. <laughs> Yeah, it's so sweet. I have to say, I liked the last twenty minutes. The scene—it starts at the part that you're talking about, where he first meets his kid. Um, And I just wish it didn't take two hours getting to that point with all the stuff that Michael was talking about with the gimmicky, oh, look at Forrest standing behind the president kind of stuff. Which at the time, I remember everybody was like, "Wow, that's really neat," and I guess it is, but it doesn't—it doesn't hold up all these years later. To me, you know, and that's kind of funny to me because you had like Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, and then. And then Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump is not the most remembered in that year for some reason. And people always go back to Pulp Fiction and The Shawshank as the two best films that people, more people remember. Forrest Gump is, like, not there. It's, people just don't remember that film very well. I would definitely say that Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption loom larger than Forrest Gump. But, I mean, when you look at even the IMD Top 50 that Sasha mentioned a minute ago, Pulp Fiction right now stands at number four, Shawshank is at number one, and Forrest is, is at number 18. So to, so to have three movies from the same year in the top 20 uh, of, out of all of movie history, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing that Forrest Gump would, would even be as strong as number 18 out of the You'd entire history of, of movies. I think know? how many people actually love Forrest Gump. I was surprised mm-hmm. by it. Uh, and on the, when the AFI did their list, I don't have the list in front of me, but I'm sure that Forrest Gump is ahead of Pulp Fiction and Shawshank on the I, No, on the actually, I, um, I, I, I might be wrong because I remember I was telling Sasha a day and a half ago, remember Sasha, I said that um, I looked at I think Shawshank is number 71, and uh-huh. it's above Forrest Gump, I believe. Okay, but I thought Pulp Fiction was like at number 94. That that comes to my mind. I think I've read that someplace recently that Pulp Fiction was at 94, so Forrest, Forrest Gump is somewhere in the middle of those two, maybe. Mm. Yeah. I'll see I if I can find the list. Shawshank 71, and, and um, Shawshank, I think Pulp Fiction is before, gets higher marks than Forrest Gump. Okay, yeah. I might I'll be wrong. Here. No, I'll confirm here in just a second because I've got I've got the list in front of me. You're right. Forrest Gump is at 76. Um, so Forrest Gump won six. Mm-hmm. Forrest Gump won six Oscars out of 13 nominations. That's pretty incredible. It did not win sound. It didn't win original score. It didn't win makeup. It didn't win sound effects. Best effects, sound effects, editing. It didn't win cinematography, it didn't win art direction, and it didn't win best supporting actor.
And yeah. maybe just because of the strength of the other movies that year that they decided to spread, share the wealth, to spread the wealth a little bit. I kind of like when they do that. I really don't like even when there's a movie that's so great that you can't deny that it should probably in any other year it would win everything. When you're in a year where there's three or four really excellent movies, I like for them to sh- to spread their wealth around a little bit. So I, for instance, I'm so glad that The King's Speech only won four Oscars and that Argo <laughs> only won three. I mean, you know, how, how terrible would it have been if they had swept, you know? Some, one of our and, fans on our podcast said that um, they were so mad about our dissing Argo that they went and watched it just in protest. <laughs> they went and watched the movie. Um, you know what's weird about this year is cinematography. Legends of the Fall won, and it beat Red. Ed, which is incredible, which is just insane. Um, Owen Roisman for Wyatt Earp, and you know he only got nominated because he's Owen Roisman. Mm. Mr. Roger Deakins for Shawshank Redemption, one of the many Oscar nominations he did not win and still has not won. And Forrest Gump and, and John Toll won for Legends of the Fall, which is kind of funny, I think, that he won for that movie considering it was it was not very well respected at the time i like the movie i really like legends of the fall and one thing that legends of the fall really is is eye candy it yeah. is absolutely postcard beautiful all the way through you could just frame so many so many still uh, frames from that movie they're they're, they're uh, so gorgeous to look at but so sometimes they do that sometimes the academy just takes the easy way out and just votes for a postcard movie and weirdly enough forrest gump's comp- main competition in the text was speed with sandra bullock here we are again with tom hanks and sandra bullock back in the race and uh, uh yeah sandra bullock is a very young uh kind of a nobody breaking out in speed and it won sound effects editing and sound <laughs> it won sound. Speed won sound over Forrest Gump. That kind of blows my mind looking back. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it is. It is. It's surprising that a movie like Speed in the first place could be, say, an Oscar winning movie, yeah. Speed, because it right. just doesn't sound like that. It should be in the same category as the other movies we're talking about. But technically, I think probably the sound really did add a lot to that movie. Can can you imagine the movie without the sound? For instance, I like to do. I don't like to do it, but I do that sometimes. Imagine what a movie would be like without the sound effects, yeah. and they would be nothing. You know. Yeah, and I think it. I think it. Uh, I think it. it it was a kind of a, a cultural phenomenon at the time, the especially the crashes, you know, like it w- really was a weird, unexpected hit. And remember, this was the time when, when the Oscars weren't so snobby yet. You know, they were kind of getting there, but they but they definitely still acknowledged pop culture. The pop- it was a really well-made thriller. You've got to admit, it just it was nonstop and it was really well put together. And I, I could watch Speed again and again. I just I, even from the opening credits, I thought the opening credit sequence was just brilliant, going up the elevator shaft and everything. Just and really Hopper. well done. From, yeah, just, That's movie just, I have not seen. I have not seen that. Oh, you got to see it, Michael. You'll like it. I think. The only thing I didn't like about it was Dennis was um, Jeff Daniels. I don't mean to pick on Jeff Daniels, but to me, he's just mm. sort of. Uh, you know his his melodramatic da- death in that movie it just takes away from it so much for me personally. But spoiler, kidding. Yeah, sorry. Anybody who hasn't seen Speed. <laughs> so it's ruined for you now, Michael. <laughs> the minute well, well, you, you tell you haven't seen it, we. Of, <laughs> no. Is that I did see Speed Two Full Throttle. I just the second. So that one was so bad that I just kind of felt that Speed was probably just the same movie. Oh yeah. 
That's the reason why I probably haven't seen it because of the sex. Yeah, there's probably no greater gap between the original movie and sequel as there is between Speed and Speed 2. Speed 2 is such an absolute total piece of shit, and Speed was really... And, and did they different directors, or did they have different directors? Surely they did. I can't imagine the same just, person could have directed both you know, movies. It just goes to show you that every great first film, no matter how much it makes at the box office, doesn't necessarily mean that the second film is going to be just as great. Mm-hmm, that, yeah. That's all it proves, you know. But they, Hollywood yeah. keeps on doing it. They keep on doing it. I'm wrong. It did have the same director, Yonda Bond, uh, directed both movies. And uh, but still, you would think that I don't know what happened. I just can't imagine what happened with the second movie. They just tried to outdo themselves too much. What can you do that's bigger than a runaway bus, a runaway cruise liner? Just right. doesn't make sense. They try to repeat that success. I do love seeing Sandra Bullock in Peril. I love her seeing her in Peril in that movie and in The Net and all the way up to now and to, <laughs> to Gravity. I just think she plays a really good person in Peril. Uh, she just does that really well. And in Speed, she doesn't really take care of herself. She's rescued. But in Gravity, she's certain. It's not spoiler. She doesn't really have any... any. Well, she kind of does. But that's another spoiler. <laughs> Never mind. But anyway, uh, I might cut all that out. Um, so moving on to the next movie, we should talk about Pulp Fiction. Um, that's that, and I, I watched recently watched Pulp Fiction and Quiz Show and Shawshank are the three films that I've just I just watched over the weekend to prepare. So they're mm-hmm. all pretty fresh in my mind, and you know, there's no denying that Pulp Fiction is a fucking beast. I mean, it's a beast. All those different storylines weaving together, all those actors. You know, it starts out with um, with uh, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, and. And they're just talking, you know, about foot massages and, the, you know, eventually the Bible and, and the Royale with cheese and all that stuff Quentin Tarantino so famous for. I didn't really like all that part of it. I thought, oh, this is so dumb. You know, why, why was this considered so great? It's so dumb. They're just talking about nothing. But then when you move through the movie, you know, you go through Uma Thurman's part, which is really great. Um, it, it just gets better and better, you know, as you as you get into the characters with Christopher Walken and then Bruce Willis. Uh, and Ving Rhames, you know, it just keeps building upon itself, you know. It's like the House of Mystery, you know, that that Winchester rifle house, which just kept building different parts of itself until it becomes this big, lumbering, mysterious thing, and it's just all style. Sometimes I think that when a director does something that is so stylistically and structurally different than anything that's ever been seen before, the first few scenes or the first 15 or 20 minutes are almost like a primer where the director is training us to get used to his style and and we're not familiar with it and so it's difficult to get into. But the first 15 or 20 minutes are intended specifically to get us used to the the idea of what we're we're in for. And so they sort of train us, give us a a quick um, uh, training session on how to understand the rest of the movie. And that's what I think... um, uh, Tarantino does so brilliantly with, with mm. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I agree. Anybody else on Pulp Fiction? It is. It's probably my. This is probably unpopular to say, but it's probably my second favorite Quentin Tarantino movie because it does rely so much more on style than, to me, on substance. My favorite is Jackie Brown because it's the film of all of his films that has the most soul in the form of the main character and also in, in Robert Forrester's character. But I remember seeing Pulp Fiction for the first time and just being jaw-dropping, you know, just just, just being not even sure entirely what to make of it because it, it was unlike anything that I'd seen before. And it just, the, the energy and, and, and the, the style and the smarts of it were just were amazing. 
Yeah, it, nobody had ever seen anything like Pulp Fiction. I mean, we all, we all of, all of us oldies here remember what that was like when it hit, and it was hit, it hit big. And he had, Quentin Tarantino had Harvey Weinstein behind him pushing that movie forward. It's When you look at it, it's so violent, and it's so weird, and so smart, and so strange. You can't imagine Academy members voting for it, especially when you look at the movies it's surrounded by. Forrest Gump, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, and Shawshank. I mean, it stands out as much as Dr. Strangelove did the year <laughs> wasn't it dr strange love up against my fair lady michael wasn't that the the same year 64 probably you're probably right yeah so it stands out that much because it is that kind of a weird um you know it, it was weird like that but but you had the sense when you were watching it that that some kind of reinvention of cinema was was happening you know you really mm-hmm. did sense that marvin what do you make all this Man, I don't even have an opinion. Well, you gotta have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped us? Oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Oh, man, I see some crazy-ass shit in my time, but just chill out, man. I told you it was an accident. You probably went over a bump or hey, something. Hey, the car ain't hit no motherfucking bump. Hey, look, man, I didn't I didn't mean to shoot the son of a bitch. The gun went off. I don't know why. Well, look at this fucking mess, man. We're on a city street in broad daylight here. Man. Well, believe it now, motherfucker. We gotta get this car off the road. You know, cops tend to notice shit like you're driving a car and piss this fucking blood. Just take it to a friendly place, that's all. This is the valley, Vincent. Marcellus ain't got no friendly well, places in the valley. Well, you my fucking town, man. Shit. What you doing? I'm calling my partner, Toluca Lake. Where's Toluca Lake? It's just over the hill here, over by Burbank Studios. If Jimmy's ass ain't home, I don't know what the fuck we gonna do, man, because I ain't got no other partners in 818. Jimmy, yo, how you doing, man? It's Jewel. Just listen up, man. Me and my homeboy are in some serious fucking shit, man. We're in a car. We got to get off the road pronto. I need to use your garage for a couple hours. It exploded the film scene. You know, people just couldn't stop talking about Pulp Fiction. And, and to this day, they really can't stop talking about it. I don't know if Quentin Tarantino has ever really topped that in terms of making an impact. Because once, the, shit, the, once the, the, the cat was out of the bag, um, there wasn't a lot of... Uh, there wasn't a lot of surprises he could he could bring out again because he got all of his shocks out with Pulp Fiction. It was so shocking, and he'd already he'd already sort of made a, a name for himself with Reservoir Dogs, and uh, but but this one was just. And uh, I think Miramax picked up the dis- distribution rights for Reservoir Dogs and made a bundle off of it because it was so inexpensive to pick up the rights for, and then it made so much money that they then they gave uh, Tarantino pretty much carte blanche to do what he wanted with Pulp Fiction with no restrictions whatsoever. And so he had complete freedom and he had all this money. And so not only was Pulp Fiction influential cinematically and it influenced a lot of filmmakers that followed, but it was also influential in the industry as the emergence of what an indie, um, an indie production company can do. And, and it was the beginning of the, of the reign of Miramax, really. Right. And it really, um, it, I found while I was watching it that it's, he is totally dependent on the level of talent of his actors. The better the actors are that work with Tarantino, the better... I mean, I guess that's true of anybody, but it's especially true of him. Like, he really does well with Bruce Willis in this movie. Bruce Willis knows how to read the lines right. And I think Uma Thurman does, too. She's so charming as, as Mia in this this crazy, weird, kooky character, you know, who... I mean, she's just so funny. She just bursts onto the screen, and she you know, wants to win the dance contest because she wants to win that statue and she's chewing on the cherry in her milkshake and she never eats it. And 
Um, I don't know. It's just she's fantastic. I think you have to, to give him some credit for that too. I mean, obviously the performers deserve the most of it, but in a lot of cases, he's he's drawing out performances that most people I don't think really expected from these people. Um, I, I'm trying to think of what Bruce Willis had done. Um, I mean, obviously he was in Die Hard and he was in Moonlighting and he was huge, but. I, 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 Just think what he did with for John Travolta that year. Yeah. One thing Tarantino can do, he, he can write the kind of roles that will, anybody is just so eager to play. You know, right. He can write the lines that's, that people know if they have five minutes on screen, they're going to be able to kill in that role. Mm-hmm. And so he can, he, can, he can call on these actors and pull something out of them. They know this is like the chance of a lifetime for them, that their career is a little bit on the rocks or it's even a little bit washed up, as I feel like John Travolta's career was at the time. He was almost becoming a little bit of a joke. You give a role like this to John Travolta, and he realizes this is his new ticket back to the 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 high the the top ranks you know and so they really nail it because they know what they've got know they know what they've been given to to work yeah. with oh for sure and right. it's hard to even imagine the time when John Travolta wasn't that guy after Pulp Fiction how how yeah. dramatically his career changed after that but but you do remember that he was just totally on the on the outs and and Tarantino loves doing that. He loves. He still to this day loves to revive careers of dead of you know actors who were just well, kind of faded. With, well, he did that with, with Pam Greer. With, exactly. Oh, with so Jackie well, Brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but but you know, with Pulp Fiction, don't you guys feel that uh, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson should have both been in the Best Actor category together because they were they had equal time. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think either of them were leads to me. They were Bruce Willis was the lead to me. He wasn't the he wasn't the uh, those guys were supporting characters to me. But 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 John Travolta was such a big star they couldn't not give it to him. You know, it's so it's it's so difficult in an ensemble ensemble cast to single out who is the who is the head of the ensemble. Much less when you have an ensemble anthology, an anthology movie that's really three different stories. That when you think about the amount of screen time that each actor has, it's hard to hard. They're stand. Everyone's going to have their favorite character. But your favorite character is not necessarily the lead character because no one is really leading the through line of the entire movie. There's not a through line. Right. But there's a big well, thrust. Everybody of the... in that film was just great. I mean, every every actor, especially the guy who, um, I don't know, the black actor's name who gets um, butt raped. The black actor, whatever his name was. Um, Ving Rhames. Ving. Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames does the Rames. raping. Yeah, Ving Rhames. I mean that. Ving. Him, Ving yeah. He, yeah, that was just an incredible scene. That that's one of like one of my favorite scenes. It's brutal, but it's sort of like just. Yeah, you know you're just you. Tarantino's just taking you somewhere. Yeah, he's totally taking you somewhere you've yeah. never been before when you see that scene. You want that gun, don't you, Zed? Go ahead and pick it up. Go ahead and pick it up. Come on, Zed, up, boy. I want you to pick it up. See? Step aside, whoop.
okay? Nah, man. I'm pretty fucking far from okay. What now? What now? Let me tell you what now. I'ma call a couple of hard pipe-hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'ma get medieval on your ass. I mean, what now between me and you? Oh, that what now? I tell you what now between me and you. There is no me in you. Not no more. That is that that to me is like the when the movie really does is at its absolute best is is when it's those two guys in that room with that guy and so I'm gonna get medieval <laughs> on your ass. But um, not only does Tarantino do things. He does things that you where he takes you places where you've never been before, but he takes you so far to those places that no director ever thinks they think, <laughs> well, we can't ever go there again. We don't ever want to go to that place again, that place of Tarantino. He, t- he showed us everything we need to know about that, and if we try to do the same thing, it'll be so obvious that we're copying him. You know, right. There and were no so one, many sort of rip-offs or imitation. Po- no one has ever gone that there. came out after that. I yeah. guess my favorite one is, is Go, which actually... No one's ever gone there for that far. Go was like I think uh, the I read some place that they called Go pup pup fiction because it was like all these puppies in you know in pup fi- in pulp fiction and I, I like Go a lot. Who directed that? The uh, Doug Liman. Somebody Doug Liman, right? Yeah. So that was another really stylish movie, and it's, it's come closest to capturing what Tarantino did than any other movie I thought. Yeah, but but still it can't because. It was uh, t- Pulp Fiction already happened, so that's the weird thing. Sure. It's like before Pulp yeah. Fiction happened, you know, it was the pre-Pulp Fiction era, and nothing in film has ever really been the same since. In fact, he almost because you know how I I always like to think of modern directors as coming out of schools of, of greater directors from the seventies, and or I'm going to add David Lynch in as one of those originals. But there's like Woody Allen school, Spielberg school, Scorsese school, Altman school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cassavetti's school, you know, these these directors, and all the modern directors come from one of those guys, and, and, and Tarantino is absolutely from the Scorsese school of gratuitous violence. He's also from the Sam Peckinpah school of gratuitous violence, but he is the only one who, who did that thing where he took pop culture and he turned it into its own weird genre, you know, and his movies are just packed mm-hmm. full of weird pop culture references. He borrows from other movies freely and doesn't even pretend he's not borrowing from them. God, um, Django Unchained is, is, is so much like Blazing Saddles. If you ever watch Blazing Saddles, it, he took so much from that movie. But that's his thing. He's, he does like a mashup of, of movies that have come previously because he knows fucking everything. He does riffs. He does riffs on movies that... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he knows everything like, about movies. Like, so he's created well, his own school. They, he's uh, created the, a, sort of taking, like Ryan said, taking riffs. 
but he's created the Tarantino school and there have been so many young filmmakers who have followed right in his footsteps and you can tell a Tarantino school director because that their, their, their movies are full of dialogue, you know, funny pop culture references. They're pretty hip and cool and they, and everything is not, and nothing is taken very seriously, you know, and, and well, there's so many well, directors like that now. Well, Pulp Fiction, um, to me, kind of reminds me of the black exploitation film back in the 70s. He kind of took from that and just brought it into the 90s and just hipped it up and it just made it more um, relevant. And he, and he populated it with white people, which made it exactly. palatable to white people. Yeah, exactly. exactly. He, did, he, made, he took that style, of, that extreme style of exploit, exploitative movie, exploitation movies and, and, and put white people in it so that white people would watch it. Yeah, because he's like, right. the movie starts with nigga this, nigga that. You know, it's nigga, nigga, right. nigga mm-hmm. all the way through mm-hmm. the beginning. And that wasn't a time when people, I don't know if they got upset about it or not. I know they did with Django and Chain, but, but Pulp Fiction is full of that language all the way through. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were people who got upset about it, Terrence, but that's, that's his thing. He likes to upset people. He doesn't mind being provocative and, he, and pushing people's buttons. That's what he's always enjoyed. It's one of the things that's made him such a cult figure is because he's he's known... As an individual, his, his his persona as a director is is it makes more of an impact on people sometimes than some of his movies, mm-hmm. or as much. You know, as the impact. thing is, is that the word nigger, and I'm going to say it. Um, oh my god! People people <laughs> talk like the thing is why I like the movie so much because people do talk that way. The yeah. word the nigger is. I mean, you can go anywhere in USA America and hear that word all the time. I know today, and I don't know where these people come from that they get so so offended by that word but it's a part of culture it no matter how many times they want to erase that word they're never going to because it's, it's heard everywhere and well, i think he placed that word and 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 especially on. if you make a, if you make a movie that if you make a movie that, that where the characters kind of come from the gutter or they're kind of lower class characters anyway they're especially going to talk like that well, what a they lot don't, of people what, who what the complaints are who, sorry the complaints oh, with Tarantino aren't that it's not a part of culture. The complaints with Tarantino using it is that Spike Lee is always complaining about that. He's he's using a word he she has no right to use. You know, he's not he's not black, and it's a derogatory term coming from a white person. So if he writes that in a script, even if a black character saying it or a white character saying it, it somehow is offensive. I think to to or I've heard that it's offensive to black people who who find that it's a word that only they should be able to use. No, see, see, I, I disagree with that. I mean, it, 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 to me, it comes from where you were brought up. I mean, when I lived in the Bronx for ten years, believe me, I've heard Spanish kids say it, I heard white kids say it, and black kids say it. I've heard black kids and white kids talking, calling each other that word. You know, it's where you come from. I think where that word is being used, and I, just because it's been derogatory towards blacks, so it's only for blacks to use. That to me is racist. That's mm-hmm. racist. That's, that's completely racist because I don't. The word doesn't affect me. I don't care if someone says I don't care if it's white, Spanish, whatever. Whoever says that word, I don't care because it doesn't affect me. I know, but you're the you whitest know? black person I know, Michael. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Not no. The whole world knows. And but, the insult to me—that sounds like an insult <laughs> to be the whitest black person. I'd rather be the blackest white person. <laughs> He always was, though, even going back to the video store days. And that's what Tarantino wants to be. Tarantino wants to be the blackest white person in America. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> but you know, the other thing he did great, really well, was he. You know, he he kind of took a page off Scors- out of Scorsese's book with the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction and and all of his movies. You know. But it's just so much fun to listen to the way he uses, playfully uses music, like especially Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, right before Uma Thurman ODs. <laughs> that whole great scene mm-hmm. where she ODs and he has to take, John Travolta has to rush her over to, you know, where Roseanne Arquette and, and um, Eric Eric Stoltz, is that his name, Eric Stoltz? Mm-hmm. Yep, right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, he's like, don't take her, don't bring her here, don't bring her here. And he's like, I, I have no choice, pal. I got to bring her there. And she comes out with the adrenaline It's probably shot. one of the most exciting 10 or 15 minutes of any movie. It has to be among the top five top exciting sequences of any movie I've ever seen. That uh, move, that that part of that movie is thrilling. It really is. And when she's, they try, when they have to. Yeah. And when then when she was revived and they're driving back in the car and she just looks like such a mess, <laughs> you know, she's know. got like blood in her hair and it's all you know, mascara smearing down her eyes, but she's still this cute. <laughs> he little, drops her back off at home. I see. Yeah, it's just this little sprite, you know, this cute little sprite. All through that movie, she is. She's so young and funny, and uh, you know, I, she is. She talk about star quality. You can watch Pulp Fiction and you can pick out who has it really, really strongly. And she is absolutely someone who has that uh, in space. I really feel like Tar- Tarantino was he was really at the top of his game with with Pulp Fiction. And Jackie Brown, I have to agree with you, Craig. It's probably a more mature and more controlled film and more narratively, you know, satisfying in the long run um i would put them i would i would rate them really the you know i said last week that i like reservoir dogs better than i like pulp fiction but in the t- seeing pulp fiction again this week i have to say this they're like almost exactly equal in my mind jackie brown pulp fiction reservoir dogs and but after that i really don't have a whole lot of use for tarantino so yeah. <laughs> 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 those three movies i remember he was he splashed out big and he used all of his great ideas and yeah. he it really, it really it blew everybody away. But then I thought after that he began to repeat himself a little bit, even with Kill Bill. Even with Kill Bill, Kill Bill for sure. So I'm going to get a lot of Inglorious yeah. Bastards and uh, Django Unchained were kind of the same sort of deal. He has got style to spare. That guy. That's the one thing about watching a Tarantino movie is, even when it's not the greatest movie, you're totally thoroughly entertained throughout. You know, like the sequences in Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. Um, just all that stuff with Jamie Foxx and the whip and the music and the fucking soundtrack. I mean, it's just, it is a joy to watch, you know, and when you're sitting down and you're thinking of it critically and you're putting it all together mm-hmm. and you have to factor in the end, it seems like both Inglorious Bastards and Django and Chain kind of have like a sloppy second half, you know, but there is no denying yeah. his style that it just, it's just, he's got it. You know, he's got that, that, that Tarantino mm-hmm. style. And in both of those movies, it still shines through, even though they're not as perfect as Pulp Fiction, you know, they're not, Pulp Fiction was not sloppy. It was tight as a drum. No. Mm-mm. Yep. And then a lot of, we have to credit the editing, I think a lot. And, uh, and, and, and it's, a, it's not surprising that Forrest Gump won best editing because that's what the Academy usually does where a yeah. movie throws a lot, throws a lot of flashbacks and a lot of, t- uh, uh, a, a large spectrum that's been edited together really, really well. They almost always go for that movie, but Sally Menke, uh, it was Tarantino's uh, oh, secret yeah. weapon in so many of his movies. Absolutely. Uh, and he won. The only Oscar that Pulp Fiction won was Screenplay, and he beat Woody Allen, Bullets Over Broadway, uh, Richard Curtis, Four Weddings and a Funeral, oh, please, Heavenly Creatures, and Red. 
Uh, Heavenly Creatures is a great movie. I can't believe it even. I will got say in defense. Oh, we should talk. We should talk about Heavenly Creatures a little bit, if you don't mind. But I want to say first about four weddings and a funeral. I don't want to just shrug it off. I will. It, was, it, it continues to me what Philadelphia started the year before, where you finally get to see gay characters on screen, who you see them. The funeral part of Four Weddings and a Funeral was much. More, oh yeah, right. I forgot about that scene. Was the most emotionally yeah. affecting part of the movie to me, you know, because and you finally get to see a gay couple, a normal gay couple, and you get to see someone who's gay who dies, who doesn't, who hasn't died of AIDS. I think I think that was a really important thing to. See on screen and i think that you you sort of lure people into the movie with the with the weddings and then you throw the funeral at them and it's a it's a it gave it's a really great message i think well, that, he, that scene he, when he gives the, the eulogy the eulogy of the funeral just I, I i cannot i just weep that movie just 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 makes me break down completely and he does the same thing with uh with love actually you know with the, mm-hmm. the gay storyline in that you know it, it kind of sneaks yeah. up on you but it's it's right there in the in the movie and the times are different obviously when love actually came mm-hmm. out when four weddings right. came out it was still semi-controversial, I suppose. Another uh, movie I forgot to mention last week, if I can just, just briefly say, just a shout-out to Ang Lee for um, uh, The Wedding Banquet in 1993. was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. That had, it was a gay-themed movie because he had a, a, a Chinese gay man and an American gay man living in New York City, and his uh, Chinese family are, just can't understand why he won't get married. And so he decides to fake that he's found a girlfriend, and they're so excited they fly to America with $30,000 to throw in this lavish wedding banquet. And it's hilariously charming <laughs> and warm and deep and heartfelt, and it's just everything that we love about Ang Lee. And you did I mention that movie so I mean, much. I'm sorry that we didn't mention that. Wait, go ahead, Craig. I just wanted to... Craig, what were you going to say? I said you did mention it last week. You just didn't go into detail on it. We didn't, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Yeah, we sped through so much, but I just wanted to, to bring up one more time. If anyone hasn't seen The Wedding Banquet, I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, that's all. All right, so moving on to our next movie, which is we'll save Shawshank for last, I think. Um, Quiz Show, which was directed by Robert Redford. Robert Redford's in the best actor race this year um, in his mid-70s in All is Lost. It's pretty amazing to... Um, look at this year, 1994, and how so many of the people that are were in the Oscar race then are in the Oscar race now, this year. And Quiz Show is uh, a very elegant, you know, interesting movie. It 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 is one of the one of the the movies that paints Hollywood or the or the television industry in kind of a negative light. And those don't always do well. The Oscars they don't tend to win anything because they Hollywood likes they like to see movies that portray Hollywood in a positive light, which is why the player didn't do so well. Um, but you know they they like it when you know it's like Argo, where Hollywood is is you know saving the hostages and doing something useful and then you know appearing wonderful and and in in Quiz Show it's really about fooling people into believing that you know somebody could really be that smart and could get the answers. Young man, the ratings went up at the same contestant came back week after week. There was only one way for that to happen. You had to know that. Young man, I sell over $14 million a year worth of Geritol. Geritol, that's the kind of businessman I am. That show 21 cost me $3.5 million year in, year out. Sales went up 50% when Ben Doran was on. 50%. So the very idea that I was unaware of every detail or aspect of that show's operation, well, frankly, it's, it's very insulting. So you know. That's even more insulting. You had to know. That's what you this just said. This is not about what I know. It's about what you know. You don't know what I know. You know that Dan Enright ran a quick quiz show. Well, he never informed you. 
Did he? Let's see what he says. Dan? Look, Dan Enright wants a future in television, okay? Chapter understands that the public has a very short memory. But corporations, they never forget. He's not that stupid. He knows he's through. No, no, he'll be back. NBC's gonna go on. Geritol's gonna go on. Makes me wonder what you hope to accomplish with all this. Don't worry, I'm just getting started. Even the quiz shows will be back. Why fix them? Think about it, all. You could do exactly the same thing by just making the questions easier. See, the audience didn't tune in to watch some amazing display of intellectual ability. They just wanted to watch the money. But what Quiz Show really is underneath all that is this weird kind of love story between two men, between the uh, Rob Morrow as the um, investigator and Rafe Fiennes as the golden boy. And then you can work John Torturo into that, too, which is one of Robert Redford's favorite themes that he works with, which is beautiful person, not beautiful person, you know, beautiful person kind of only being judged on his looks and not beautiful person not getting the same breaks. It's a, it's a running theme in, in um, Redford's work as a director, and it's no wonder because he was that pretty boy, you know, so he relates to that. But uh, if you watch Quiz Show, you'll see that there is a seduction going on as Rafe Fine seduces Rob Morrow uh, into this kind of life of the intellectual, you know, the, the, the golden boy, the golden family, you know, in their, their lakeside house and reciting poetry and having Shakespeare quote contests. And, um, and he's lured in, but by the end, you know, he has to finally trap and expose Charles Van but He tries to avoid it, though. He tries to get what he wants without selling, without throwing uh, Van Dorn under the bus. And that's when the movie really starts to shine for me. Up to that point, it's great. And it has a lot more to say about America than Forrest Gump could ever dream of. Um, and that's why it didn't win the Oscar, probably. But you're right. The, the relationship between the two of them is when it really starts to sing. And, and what I didn't realize until I watched it this time is that Rob Morrow's character is Doris Kearns Goodwin's husband in real life. Oh, know no. I didn't know that. Are you kidding? Yeah, Richard Goodwin. Well, I didn't know on. that either. You've got to be joking. Absolutely serious. Wow. That's incredible. No way. So that means that Doris Kearns Goodwin, she wasn't the Mira Sorvino character, was she? No. No, no. no, no that was his first her, her husband. Her husband. No, no. Mira Sorvino but, would have been Doris Kearns Goodwin if they had stayed married that long. But I guess that's his second marriage. Wow. What a trip. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Huh? Yeah. With your permission, we might at this point view a, a portion of the program 21. Whenever you're ready. Herb Stemple, with your $69,500 still at stake, although now at $2,500 a point. The category is newspapers. How many points you want to try for? There, there's the lip biting. <laughs> yes, you see. Finally, I was told to uh, open my eyes and with a dazzling smile, give the answer and explode when Jack Barry says, that is right. The Emporia Gazette? That is right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where he got it all. Some article on mass psychology he read in Esquire. <laughs> yeah. I'll try eight points. 
Here, watch Van Doren. He's even better at it than I am. Mr. Stemple, if, if I might refer you Mr. to you... Mr. Stemple, are you suggesting that Charles Van Doren was also coached? Well, of course he got the answers. Why would they give me the answers and not give him the answers? Why would they make me take a dive unless they knew the other guy would get to 21? It's illogical. You don't fix one guy without fixing the other guy. It's, it's implausible mathematically. It would be, and you have eight points. You see, you see, look at him. You see with the brow? Patting? Not smearing. Uh, Mr. Stemple, have you ever received any psychiatric treatment of any kind? What? Uh, Mr. Stemple, I was wondering if... Mr. Goodwin, please. Five sessions a week. That's pretty extensive, isn't it? <laughs> well, I believe we can all use a little help at various times in our lives. Is it possible that any of your testimony is motivated by an irrational animosity toward Mr. Enright? I, I, I don't know. If a, if a man doesn't live up to his agreements... A morbid fixation on Mr. Van Dorn. If a man promises certain things just to shut me up... Now, how'd you like to make $25,000 and you said, well, who wouldn't? But in retrospect, look at Van Doren. I should have held out for a lot more. You prostituted your intellectual ability for money. That's the difference between me and Van Doren. I admit it. I have my morality. Charles Van Doren is a professor at Columbia University, a master's degree in astrophysics, a PhD in literature, hails from one of the most prominent intellectual families in this country. Isn't it just possible, Mr. Stemple, that you got the answers and he didn't? Weird thing about um, Quiz Show is that is that the only acting nomination it got was for Paul Schofield for playing Charles Van Doren's father, you know, the uh, poet, and he's great in it. You know, he's wonderful. I have to admit, but that Mark Van, mm -hmm. yeah, Mark Van Doren. That that uh, Ray Fiennes wasn't nominated, and that especially John Turturro was not nominated for supporting actor. Seems to me. One of the big crimes, and you have, in supporting, you had Ed Wood, who, I mean, Martin Landau, who won for Ed Wood, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, uh, and Michael's Wright, just because he's black doesn't mean he should be in supporting, Chaz Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway, Paul Schofield, Quiz Show, and Gary Sinise, Forrest Gump, those are all really good nominees, you know, I can't imagine bumping any of them yet, well, maybe Chaz Palminteri, I suppose, if I had to, but, um, but it just seems like it's crazy that John Turturro was overlooked for that wonderful performance of of Herbert Stemple. <laughs> He's so great mm -hmm. all the way through um, the movie quiz show. You know, it's really, really, I have to say, worth seeing we'll to, just because of him. It, it is a shame he wasn't nominated, but, and it, but there's no denying that Paul Schofield, they should have both been nominated. But because Paul Schofield, not only was he fantastic in quiz show, is like the moral, he's like the hard the moral center of that movie. Mm. Uh, he's also, after he won his For a Man for All Seasons, his career, although it was distinguished, he chose some really good projects. They were almost too literary and too erudite, so he never really received any sort of awards attention But between the time that he made A Man for All Seasons in 1966 and then 30 years later before he finally gets another good role that so that people can recognize him again and what a fine actor he is. Yeah, that's so That's another the reason why he... Why, you, that's true. But, yeah, that is true. Yeah. What's true? Well, true that he was working in England, and so that maybe helped to stop his, kept his from becoming as high profile as some of the other Oscar winners have become, because they they all win an Oscar and go to Hollywood to sell out. 
Yeah, because there are some actors, actors that for some reason, once they make one Hollywood film, they, they rush back to England. Because for some reason, there's something about Hollywood that they don't like. I think that they don't like the Hollywood machine. I wonder and what. They go back to England, well, and they go back to England, and their careers are prosperous. And we think, oh, whatever happened to them? But they're doing great work mm-hmm. in their own country. And then he came back here. He did this show, movie, maybe because he's um, Robert Redford knew him, liked his work, cast him in the film, and, and then people go, oh my God, where has he been? So they gave him a nomination, problem. You know, right. he, he was like, That's good. what I'm thinking. You, you expressed it better than the film. He was like the moral fiber job. of the film. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant. You, no. you did a better job explaining yeah, I mean, it than I did. Michael. He's old Hollywood. You know, he yeah. won an Oscar already. So yeah. throw him mm-hmm. like another bone. In a sense, even though John Turturro should have got a nomination, also, I mean that's like a crime. He was so good in that film from yeah. beginning to end. He was just phenomenal in that. He is so great. He's like, do you think I should get and my you know, teeth capped? <laughs> no, Hollywood is weird though. They're they're really weird. They they just there's when they do this whole nominating thing, it's like they they can see a great performance, but for some reason they pass it by and give it to somebody else who. Like Chaz Pulmonary, whatever his name is, he could have got left out, really, because he's not that great in that film. Um, I think it's Willis Over Broadway. That's the film mm-hmm. that he got nominated for. He's not that good in that film. I mean, they should have passed him over and threw in John Turturro. Well, they like um, they like uh, Bullets Over Broadway. In fact, for the director category, um, the two directors that that were nominated. Um, for instead of Frank Darabont for Shawshank Redemption and um, what's his name for Four Weddings and a Funeral um, what's his name Richard Curtis for Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, was um, Woody Allen for Bold Silver Broadway and Christoph Kieslowski for Three Colors Red which by the way was totally deserved you gotta hand it to the director's branch for always stepping up <laughs> you know but um, but it is, it's always weird when Best Picture and Best Director don't match. Now, if, if this year was like this, the year we're living through now, there's a really good chance that um, these directors' films would be represented um, in the Best Picture race because there, there can be up to nine. So probably you would see um, Bullets Over Broadway in there and Three Colors. Funnily enough, as we learned this last year with Argo, just because they're in the Best Director category doesn't mean that their movie is still going to win Best Picture. The support in the Best Picture category is a lot more important than the support in just the director's branch, which we, we learned the hard way uh, for, for Driving Miss Daisy and for Argo. But, um, but I guess we should move on to Shawshank Redemption, which is um, an adaptation of a Stephen King short story. And stars Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, who occupies the film's best moments, in my opinion, which was the, la- the film's last 30 minutes. I think up to that point, it's, it's interesting, it's a great movie and everything, but for me, it's about Red. It's not about Andy Dufresne. It's more about Red. And when, so when Red's story takes over, when Andy escapes prison and is gone, that's when the movie really becomes truly great, in my opinion, when he... Um, when he comes out and he's working as a grocery bagger and they and he has to ask to go to the bathroom and how humiliated he is and when he goes and finds the box and he seeks out Andy and that beautiful monologue at the end 
and he decides not to commit suicide. I mean, all that stuff to me is what makes Shawshank Redemption so great, not to mention the metaphor of hope, you know, throughout and how you can't keep a, a bird in a cage, you know, and how to keep hope alive in the worst circumstances, you know. That's what it's about. That, it's a great movie. That, that, that closes voiceover monologue for in in uh, Shawshank Redemption is so so perfect it's such a perfect ending for that movie it makes me wonder how much of it I, I don't have any idea how much of that was lifted straight out of Stephen Stephen King's novel how yeah. much of it was was his Stephen King's creation and how much was Frank Darabont's creation I don't but know where, whoever wherever it came from I mean that really makes the movie it, it, it seals it with a kiss so sweetly yeah it, it shows you how important it is to finish your movie well you know, mm-hmm. you that's to me, it's it's not about the beginning or the middle. It's absolutely about the end. And if you can, as Craig would say, stick the landing, you know, you'll have a memorable film. You'd leave that you you have people walking out of the theater just going, oh, wow, that was so great. Mm-hmm. So the uh, it, had to, it had to have hurt. Um, it's uh, Shawshank Redemption's overall prestige. Did you say this already? The fact that it didn't get. The best director nomination that it had to have co- no. that had to have colored people's uh, opinion of the movie because uh, even though that uh, Airbond was nominated for best screenplay, the fact that he didn't get nominated for best director probably lowered the um, status of the movie in most people's eyes. Yeah, uh, the voters, I mean, until it was reassessed. I don't know what the circumstances were behind the release of Shawshank Redemption, how it was received when on first release, whether. It was whether it was successful or not, or whether it finally found its its audience on on DVD later. That's what uh, happened. I, I can't yeah. explain what, what happened with that. Well, that's what happened. It wasn't yeah. well received. I mean, it was pretty well received, but frankly, it's a miracle it even got the Oscars attention that it got, because it wasn't considered a, a hit. Yeah. And um, it took people just like with Vertigo and other great movies. It took people a while to really discover it, ruminate on it, and and find out why it was so great. I remember at the time people thought it was just kind of too long. They didn't really get it. They associated it with Stephen King. Stephen King didn't have um, positive associations back then with the with the Academy so much. So uh, they liked the movie enough. Mm-hmm. To he didn't it. have a really prestige. He didn't have a prestige reputation. Stephen King was known for a certain type of movie, so not only did he have the sort of horror movie um, uh, tag labeled labeling him, but it may have led people into a movie with wrong with the wrong expectations. They might, right. might have gone to see Shawshank Redemption they, expecting to see some sort of horror horrific t- twist ending that was never that never came. So a lot of people might have felt like that just the name Stephen King associated with the movie was a little bit of misleading or bait and switch or something. Yeah. I think so. It's kind of funny because the same thing happened with Stand By Me, because people didn't mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. didn't realize that Stand By Me. Because if they used the original title, which was The Body, people would have thought of Stephen King horror. But Stand By Me is completely like a different film. But unlike um, Shawshank, Stand By Me was a hit. Right. It, so it, mm-hmm. it was a hit, but right, it right. wasn't a film that capture like Oscar nominations or anything like that. And and I also I kind of um, it's kind of strange that Stephen King's non-horror books that became films were some of them were actually better films than some of his horror films that be horror novels that became films. Mm. Right. Like mm-hmm. Shawshank, Stand by Me, and I think there's one more I believe that became a, one of the other serious novels. And, but that's kind of funny because and, you know, Stephen King hates any of his 
novels that became films. He's not happy with a lot of so, but I don't know how he was with Shawshank. He loved Shawshank. Shawshank's one of the, his favorite ones. But um, Shawshank only made $28 million. And I don't, I think that was respectable at the time. 94. What was the budget? It doesn't say on here. But, but it, oh no, the production budget was 25. So. <laughs> yeah. The other so movie that you're thinking million. of, Michael. The other yeah. movie, the Stephen King movie that you may be thinking of was probably The Green Mile that I got that mixed up with Tom Hanks yeah. because, of course, Tom Hanks, is, okay. Tom Hanks is my favorite part of the Shawshank Redemption, as I said earlier, like an idiot. That's okay. That's but, uh, get them all um, mixed up, that, right? That's, probably, that's the other, that's the other, um, there, that's, that's the prison movie that had a, had a supernatural element to it, but it was still was not what you would call a horror film by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Shawshank just works, and... Mm-hmm. They had a hard time selling it, I think. It was like it had to get out from under Tim Robbins' reputation at the time. And it, you know, they had to market it as something. But what do you market it as? You know, what do you tell people? It's, it's such a poetic um, film. It's so beautifully put together and, and sweet and sad. It always makes me laugh. Andy Dufresne who crawled through a river of shit and came out clean on the other side. Andy Dufresne, headed for the Pacific. <laughs> Handley's got him by the throat, right? And he says, I believe this boy's about to have himself an accident. Those of us who knew him best talk about him often. I swear the stuff he pulled. I these friends of mine could use a couple of beers. <laughs> and he got it. And he got it. That was wrong. Sometimes it makes me sad, though, and to being gone. I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. But still, the place you live in is that much more drab and empty that they're gone. I guess I just miss my friend. It go, kind of goes on and on forever, you know. It's, it's, it's sort of like vertigo in that way. It's got all these kind of crazy twists and turns. So it makes it hard for a mass audience to really gobble it up and understand what, what they're trying to, you know, what, what the movie's trying to say right all at once. But over time, well, people watch it what, over and over again, they start to see how great it is. Well, what made the movie work for me was the narration by Morgan Freeman because it was so beautifully placed in the film that it just got you more into the film. I think without the narration, I probably would not be so loving of the film. But because of the narration, how he explains certain things in the film, it just moves so smoothly that you end up enjoying and want, and you want more from the film. Yeah. Just because of because the way he speaks and everything. So, so for me, it was a narration that really captured me into really loving this film. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Say what to nail. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. 
and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. living or get busy dying that's goddamn right for the second time in my life i'm guilty of committing a crime parole violation of course i doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that not for an old crook like me fort hancock texas please I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. So, Craig, yeah. did you like Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, I do. I like it a lot. Did you and watch it recently? or? I haven't watched it for a long time, but I've seen it, you know, dozens of times hmm. over the years. It just it strikes me as one of those perfect movies. There's, it, there's people who don't like it, and I think they just don't like that kind of magical, realist sort of, sort of film. But to people who do, there's, there's just nothing wrong with it. Um, one thing that I wish, I kind of wish that we had done... For the past 46 episodes, it, uh, we sort of do by accident, just, and it comes out in the course of the conversation what our favorite movies every year are. But in a year when there are so many good movies that are, that are somewhat overlooked, it makes me wish that, that once, once in a while we would take time to each say which of the, like, what are our three favorite movies of the year every year, you know, uh, that even when they don't match up with the Oscar nominees. Hmm. Would Shawshank Redemption be among your, your three favorite movies of 1994, would you say, Craig, or not? Uh, no, that would be uh, Ed Wood, Pulp Fiction, and Eat, Drink, Mad Woman, probably. Oh, yeah, right. Boy, Ang Lee was really on a roll. And it's another one of those movies where he sort of deconstructs the Chinese nuclear family thing and, 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 and sort of brings, brings the traditional Chinese um, family ideas of culture up to date into the 20th century and it's and it was another one of his crossover movies that introduced uh him and introduced chinese film to a larger audience or a global audience it was the first film of his that i actually saw i didn't see uh, wedding banquet until many years later because i liked eat drink man woman so much mm-hmm. and we're pretty soon coming up to um only working with an american film with sense of sensibility will be coming up right we didn't pass that already did we no, no, no it's coming up. Yeah, because he's just starting to become on the rise right now. People are noticing him as a formidable storyteller, which is fantastic that he 
Um, I, I, you know what movie came out this year that I absolutely loved was Crumb, the documentary about R. Crumb. And that oh, yeah. was probably, um, you know, uh, in my top three, I would have to go with uh, Shawshank and Quiz Show are my two favorites and, and Crumb. I love Pulp Fiction and everything, but it's it's never been one of my favorite movies. It's just not. Doesn't he end the gut in the same way? It never really did, I'm, and I appreciate it. I've always appreciated his style. It's just that, I mean, it sounds so unhip, but it just was never my thing. You know, it never really was. It always seemed young to me. It always seemed lacking in depth, and that's okay. You know, it's okay for it to lack in depth. A lot of people just like style. You know, they like that. But for me, I like to dig deeper. And so stories that reveal themselves over time as having deeper meaning, like I find Quiz Show to be one of those movies, and uh, for sure Shawshank. God, you can watch that movie a hundred times and still find new things about it that it says. But And then Crumb is just a great movie about a great man. R. Crumb is one of the, you know, just, I wish he was my, he's my imaginary husband. I would love to have married him. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, but, but Tarantino is never really, I've never really connected with him on a personal level. I never have with his films. Another great documentary in 1994 was Hoop Dreams. I believe it was oh, Robert yeah. G- Roger Ebert's number one movie of the year. He named a documentary his favorite movie of the year, and it's uh, it was pretty much overlooked by the Academy, wasn't it? I don't Shit, even know. was yeah, that this year? That was yeah. a big deal that it was overlooked. It was it caused a mm-hmm. huge fuss. In fact, I haven't seen anyone cause so much of a fuss with the Academy as Ebert did that year with Hoop Dreams. It did end up getting a... um, It didn't get a a documentary nomination, but it did get a nomination for something. What was it? Um, uh, Editing. Editing, editing. I bet. I think I saw that earlier. It got an editing nomination, I think. Yeah. Possibly. Hoop Uh, Dreams. Editing. Right. mm -hmm, Yeah. Back to what you said a minute ago about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Craig, um, and and Wedding Banquet both was the first time, first two movies that um, uh, Ang Lee and James Seamus partnered together. And and James Seamus is... Yeah, James Seamus is in the news this week because a big shakeup of folks focus features. James Seamus, who's been the heart and soul of Focus and who's given us so many great movies over the year, because of his his intelligence and his his uh, his his just there's no other word for it, but just great. He has great taste. He has great taste in in the projects that he's chosen to have uh, to have Focus Shepherd into the into cinemas. He's gone now because he's gone back to work with Ang Lee on their next collaboration, which will be a a 3D history of boxing movie. Hmm. Wow. That's the thing is he's going to keep working. He's still going to be involved with movies, mm-hmm. but it's uh, yeah. it's basically the people who run Focus saying we're not interested in making good movies anymore. We would rather make dog shit that makes money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the Especially considering that the guy that they've come, that they found to, to replace James Seamus, who I don't really, I don't know anything about the guy, and he may turn out to be, who knows what he could do. But the movies that he's given us so far have not been very impressive. Insidious and Olympus Has Fallen and 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 Drive movies like that. They're like almost like B movie drive-in style movies. You know, they're not really high class movies that James Seamus has been famous for. I like Insidious. Uh, Insidious is okay, but Insidious is not Sense and Sensibility. Right, true. You but know, I want to yeah. say that um, for, for for 1994, this is right. Um, mm-hmm. My one of my favorite films, what Craig mentioned, um, Ed Wood. I love that film. I, it, it was a complete bomb when it came out. But whenever I see that film, it's just the beautiful black and white, 
the costumes, the I mean, that movie, it's just, it kind of, when you see that film, you kind of think that they actually made it back in the 50s. Right, it has a similar look. It has that look, the black, glorious black and white. It's, it's like, I don't I don't own that film, but it's on YouTube. and I, That's where I, I saw it so many times on YouTube. But I don't know why that film did not do well. Maybe because a lot of people did not know who Ed Wood was. But um, Johnny Depp played him perfectly. That's one actor that should have got nominated for Ed Wood, other Absolutely. than um, Martin Landau, because he played that character beautifully. He was completely Ed Wood. You forgot it was Johnny Depp. It was Ed Wood, and he was he did it such a a great, great performance that was overlooked only because I believe because the film bombed at the box office. But Martin Landau, who played Bella Lugosi, that it, it was such a comedic performance that um, it has captured the Academy. And he had already had two previous Oscar nominations, I believe. So he was, it was a well-deserved win. Comedic, but it was poignant, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that was one of my favorite films of that year. Favorite film. I love it. I love it because, you know, everybody who knows of Ed Wood knows that he's this maker of, of really shitty B pictures that people, that are so bad that people like them. And it would have been really easy to make a movie that's just kind of making fun of him and getting a lot of ironic humor out of it. And there is that element. It never makes the case that Ed Wood is a fantastic filmmaker, but it taps into his enthusiasm and his creative drive. And it's actually very inspiring to, to for me, someone who has always you know, had a fear of failure and a fear of making an ass of himself to see somebody who had neither of those fears and just charged ahead despite all of the odds of being against him. And despite people telling him that he was no good, that he would just do it anyway. And I think that's a, I think that's a message that a lot of people respond to. Right. He never let people say, no, you can't do this. No, that's bad. He, he, he just trudged on and made this film no matter how bad or, or great they were, he wasn't really into making great films. He loved making movies. He loved the film industry. That's what he loved. He wasn't into making great epic films. Oscar no, but at the same time, he wasn't trying to make the worst movies ever made either. He was, he was deadly yeah. earnest in the films that he was making. Right. You know, like every time I see, because I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space, <laughs> it is definitely a bad film. But in a, <laughs> in a good way, if you really think about it, it's just, it's it's completely even it goes below B movie honestly. Mm -hmm. But when you watch it, it's fun to watch. It's a fun bad movie. It's one of the few bad films that you can really have fun watching. You know, even because you know it's bad, so you're not going in thinking it's Star Wars, but it's a bad film. But for some reason, when you sit down and watch that film, it's funny. It's it's a fun movie to watch. Just like um, Sauce used to watch. Um, robot Monster. Remember that, Sasha, back in the day? You and Jocelyn, like Robot Monster? Mm. And it's a bad, bad film, but it's fun to watch. And I think that's why I like Ed Wood so much, because he's just, he's just, he's completely out there. You know, his, his films are just great. Yeah. And so many directors get their... Okay, so that year, um, it's weird. In the acting categories, we have Jessica Lange finally winning her Oscar for Blue Sky. Um, but the, also the first Screen Actors Guild Awards were held that year, and Jodie Foster won for Nell. But Jessica Lange ended up winning um, for Blue Sky. And funnily enough, the BAFTA Awards, which were held after the Oscars at that time, Susan Sarandon won Best Actress for The Client. 
and Samuel L. Mm. Jackson won for Pulp Fiction. Kristen Scott Thomas won for supporting instead of Diane Weist for Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, Quiz Show won adapted screenplay. Pulp Fiction again won original screenplay. I, um, and Four Weddings of a Funeral won the BAFTA for Best Picture. Mike Newell, I shouldn't have said Richard Curtis, please forgive me. Mm. Mike Newell, the director, uh, won Best Director. And Hugh Grant, <laughs> boy, they sure like that movie, won Best Actor for Four Weddings. What I find mm. interesting about this is we're living in an era now where all the award bodies pretty much copy each other. And the BAFTAs mm. included. The BAFTAs now are just like the SAGs and just like the... You know, Producers Guild and the Directors Guild, and, you know, they all vote uniformly almost always across the board. Everybody wants to influence Oscars. Everything is held before the Oscars. Well, back then, nobody cared because nobody was monitoring the awards. Nobody was paying attention to the awards, so the BAFTA could do whatever they wanted. They weren't considered an influencer of the Oscars then. They didn't They didn't change their date till about the year 2000, but back then they were held in April, and their picks were totally different from the Academy, you know. How nice mm-hmm. to have that, you know. Right, you know, exactly. You know, the interesting thing about the Best Actress, Jessica Lange's film Blue Sky was actually a film that they put on the shelf. It was made, I think, uh, two years earlier. And so they mm-hmm. put it on the shelf. And if they did not release that film, take it off the shelf and release it, I think Jodie Foster probably would have won. I don't think so. Jodie Foster would not. No, she's already won two Oscars. She'd have won two. Yeah, she'd won two at that point. She's not winning almost like consecutively. Yeah, Jessica Lange was way overdue. She's great in Blue Sky. It did seem like a weird random award when she won, though. And Nell is just a little bit too much like Holly Hunter in in the piano, slightly. I mean, the same sort of like unable to talk kind of movie. Yeah. And that had just they'd already done that the year before. Um, Well, I know that when when they were all you know. They were saying that um, back then the whole talk was Jodie Foster could end up winning her third Oscar. You know, oh, she yeah. was she was the front runner. She was the front runner. Nobody expected Jessica Lange from Blue Sky. I think that was a big surprise for a lot of people. No one expected because a lot of people didn't see that film. Well, nobody can, was it. I nobody can. could have predicted Nell because she wouldn't have won her third. Here are the other comp- competitors: is uh, Miranda Richardson for Tom and Viv, Winona Ryder for Little Women, never was going to happen. Susan Sarandon for The Client, which was more like a supporting part. So I don't know why they put her in as lead for that. It was definitely supporting. So it's that's all, a really also, weak it's like year. A, it's like a, it's a John Grisham thriller, right? And so that kind of movie was not probably going to win. It was also a very weak. First of all, there's a lot more supporting. Or there's a lot more wonderful actresses in Four Weddings and a Funeral, like Kristen Scott Thomas, who didn't get nominated. Um, and even Andy McDowell is great in Four Weddings. I mean, Susan Saran, I'm not saying she's not great. It's just that that, to me, was like a week. It's a very weak year for actresses, though, because if you'll notice, there's not a single um, best, a- you know, best Actress nominee that stars in a Best Picture nominee. Mm-hmm. All the best actresses are in movies that were not nominated for Best Picture. And that that's happened before. It's pretty rare. Um, after this year, it, it happens a lot more. But for sure, Best Picture is almost always more populated by Best Actor contenders. Um, let me just look at this year. Just look at this year, how, how it, right. it boiled down. But um, so we're starting to see this really this dearth of really great female lead roles in Hollywood, and so that's that's being reflected in the in the in the crop of nominees that they can come up with. They sort of have to dig down into movies that not many people have seen right. in order to to even find a group of nominees 
find, to find five actresses to begin with. And Blue Sky was a movie nobody saw. I mean, it was like this weird kind of little independent, mm-hmm. meant for, you know, really meant for Jessica Lange to win the Oscar, basically. But and nobody saw it. I mean, nowadays, actresses win all the time for movies no one has seen. But back then, usually a lot of people had seen your movie by the time you got to the Oscars. I, I still was a victim seen it. of the I bankruptcy of Orion Pictures. It was one of the films that got shelved because Orion went away. And so they probably dusted it off, like you said, just because of Jessica Lang. But at that point, there was nobody with any money to actually um, market it. Mount so voice. Yeah. And, and, and Mount I'd be surprised if it even played in a lot of theaters, probably. Because she earned a lot of cred when she lost for Frances, and I think she lost to Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice. There was no way anybody was beating Sophie's Choice, but there was still this idea that Jessica Lange was really, really overdue. And she had won supporting that year, but she was really overdue um, to win lead, and that's, I think, why it was the perfect opportunity. She had no competitors, you know. Mm -hmm. That was an easy win. But it was definitely to me. A surprise win. I mean, I love Jessica Lange, but I think it was a surprise win. Because I was really hoping, I was really counting on Jodie Foster in there. I know, but she wouldn't have won three. She wouldn't have won three A and B. She, um, everybody was joking about now. It had become a joke, you know? I'm afraid so, yeah, because it was so easy to imitate and mock. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. I, I like thought. it. I like the movie. I mean, I agree with you, Michael. It was a really fantastic performance. But I mean, it was it had it had, um, it had the problem, but not a lot of people probably saw it, and a lot of people who did see it probably giggled through it and stuff like that. And it uh, for some various reasons, it, uh, like and Sasha says that when you've already won two Oscars in close in such close succession, uh, it's really it would be really rare to think that anyone is it would be able to pull off a three-peat in the same decade. I guess there's only one actor who's ever. Won- won three Oscars in shorter time than any other performer in history. And that was back in the back in the thirties. Walter Brennan won three Oscars in five years. And that's never happened mm-hmm. before. Right. Like yeah. So I guess in, in, I guess it took Meryl Streep twenty years to win her third Oscar or thir- close to thirty years to win her third Oscar. So I guess that's true. It's kinda of sad though because um yeah it, it may be a performance that's mimicked by a lot of people and probably Saturday night Live has had done it, but to me, I'm a big Jodie. I love Jodie Foster. I, I think she's one of our, our great actresses, and to me, it was a great performance. And well, I, I love it. That's good. I mean, back briefly to Ed Wood. I have to say, Ed Wood is probably my favorite my favorite Tim Burton movie of all time. Um, I will say that one thing about Ed Wood, he made a career of making bad movies. A lot of directors start out making low-budget movies, and the, the movies that, that sell that are low-budget are horror films and, and uh, bloody uh, sort of uh, schlockfest kind of movies. A lot of directors start out that way, and then they move on to, to, um, to bigger and better and more serious subjects. And one director who did that in 1994 was Peter Jackson, who previously made Bad Taste and Meet the Freebles and something called Brain Dead, I have, which I haven't seen. I've heard is really good. And then, but then he, all of a sudden, he surprised everyone with Heavenly Creatures, doing something so much more serious and so much more mature. And really, some it's really, I think probably Heavenly Creatures and Pulp Fiction and Quiz Show are probably probably my three favorite movies of 1994. Hmm. Heavenly Creatures blows me away still to this day. It's a what true story. It's, it, 
It's a true story based on a based on a, on a, a murder that took place in the 1950s. These two schoolgirls uh, meet each other. One is a one is a, uh, an, an immigrant to New Zealand. Uh, her parents are really sophisticated, sort of uh, uh, scholarly, uh, academic types. And I think her father is the headmaster of some school, and and uh, Kay Winslet plays her, and she meets up with a. With a with a New Zealand girl, a native New Zealand girl, whose whose family are like um, fish fishermen or fishmongers or something like that, and so there there's a difference in their in their upbringing and culture, but they really hit it off and they 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 have a great friendship and they they have a great fantasy life and they they invent all these stories about um, this fantastical realm called Baroque, I believe is what it's called, and they get really wrapped up in each other, and their parents start to believe that their relationship is unhealthy. They begin to think that they have a lesbian relationship. Well, they do, been, though. Never they been do. Proved. I think they do, yeah. But the fact that in they In the movie, I don't know about real life, but yeah. in the movie, they have yeah. that kind of... I mean, if you're a young girl, yeah, I'm, the only, I'm the only they're woman in, in this podcast, so I can say that when you're a woman at that age, 14 or whatever, you are really passionately in love with your, you know, your girlfriends. They are living among two dutiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters. You cannot know nor yet try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule, and I worship the power of these lovely two. With that adoring love known to so few. Yvonne! Heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively, they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes with enemies for fuel. Icy scorn glitters in the grey eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools? They will not realise the wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes. These wonderful people are you and I. That's just how mm-hmm. it is. And they show age. them in bed together. They show them in bed together. The movie hints yeah, that they're yeah, lesbians, yeah. but yes, there's yeah. no because the family wanted to hush it up. Mm-hmm. If That's it was true, they actually they. What? I, you know, I can't think of the other. Melanie Linsky, who's um, had a kind of a career resurgence. She 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 had a co-starring part for a long time on Two and a Half Men, but she's been in several indie films over the last few years. Um, she was in. Uh, she played Matt Damon's wife in in um, uh, what was the uh, Soderbergh one that he did with uh, with the corn guy, the informant. Oh yeah, I didn't know and that. She, 
and she's been in several things. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so she, they, the parents want to pull them apart because they're, they have a weird relationship that makes them uncomfortable. And so the girls scheme to murder the mother of... The of the of the less of the less well off family, the, uh, the New Zealand her. family. Yeah, and they murder and her. They, and the girls were were they were fifteen, I think, at the time. And so. and one of them has remade herself into a famous mystery writer. She writes she, books. Yeah, her name's Anne Perry. Yeah, she Perry. she changed her name to Anne Perry. She lives in Scotland now, and she's written like like twenty or thirty or forty really well received mystery novels. She's highly she's really successful now. She's the tall blonde one. She's the Kate Winslet, right? Kate, Kate Winslet character, right? They yeah. both. Both after the after the trial, I think that they did serve just a little time in juvenile court or something like in juvenile um, detention, and then when they were released, they both vanished from sight and went off and started a new life. And the other girl has never really been. I don't think they've ever tracked her down to know what happened to her. But the the girl who had moved and who Kate wins the yeah, it's really played, sad that came famous. You the know? thing about heavenly creatures is, first of all, it's probably. Oh my God! I'm going to get killed for saying this, but I think it's Peter Jackson's best movie. <laughs> I really do. For me personally, like I, I, I appreciate Lord. No, I do too. I do too. Absolutely. Yeah. Wait, one at a time. Okay, so Craig, go ahead. Craig, hello. Did I lose everybody again? Uh-huh. Yeah. Craig, since we're familiar with the Hobbit, uh, can I get cut off again? I'm yeah. Here. Can you start again? Uh, Sorry, can you start again? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, now go because I couldn't hear you before. I'm here. No, I was looking for Craig. Can you hear me now? Now I can hear you, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's almost shocking that it's a Peter Jackson movie to see it now because he's gone in such a different direction with the Hobbit movies and King Kong and everything else. I think he, I agree with you. It's his best movie. I mean, it's, 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 I think he tried to go back to that when he did Poor Lovely Bones that got clobbered by critics and audiences alike. It, and it's not as good of a movie, but I think he was trying to plumb similar territory to that, and it just didn't have quite the same magic as it, as it did when he did Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly Creatures is so sad. Like it, it, It's so great when they're living their fantasy world. And Kate, by the way, introduction of Kate Winslet to the world, and she just pops off the screen. But um, but it gets sad. I mean, when when the mother dies, it, it just all of a sudden everything comes to a screeching halt, and it's like, oh my god, that's mm-hmm. horrible, and that's really because sad. because you get wrapped up. They don't. They never make the murder the two kids. They don't make them into villains. They you you sympathize with them. You're inside of their world, and you you really are inside of their friendship with them, and you get drawn into their world and their fantasy world, and you really almost can't believe that their scheme of murder. Is any more than just a fantasy until it really happens, and it's such a brutal murder, murder too. I mean, they actually murdered this girl's mother with a brick in stocking. They like beat her repeat with a with a with a brick, and so it was really gory, you know. And so to see the movie end like that, and to see their friendship torn apart, and to realize what how you can get swept up into your fantasy world so deeply that you that you don't even realize that you lose your sense of morality the way that they did. It's tragic. It's so tragic. But they but. Peter Jackson never demonizes them for that. Mm. No, he Not. doesn't. He doesn't. And, you know, it really doesn't explain why they did murder her because it wasn't like murdering the mother was going to make them be together forever. It wasn't going to happen. Right. You know, it was just some weird, right. crazy thing you do when you're in love. 
And she, the Kate Winslet character, had some weird disease, like some body. What was it again? Like tuberculosis. Uh, yeah. Tuberculosis, I think, that was recurring, and then she had to be, she had to go away and be uh, uh, in the wherever they send you when, when you've got tuberculosis. You have to be quarantined, you know, because it's so contagious. Yeah, but they they were so cloistered in their little world that yes, it freaked people out. Uh, didn't they write in a journal or something? There was like a they had like a book that they were keeping all their records mm-hmm. in. And, Anyway, you can Wikipedia all this stuff, Michael. You can look it up online. I went down the rabbit hole on that, and I looked it up all the real people and the stories and everything to see what the movie got right. And Peter Jackson really did turn it into a fantasy. And he brought it to life. He brought the, their weird fantasy world to life, and it's really something to see. It's, it's actually funny and creepy and strange and ultimately sad. It's a perfect balance. And it really shows off his talent as a, as somebody who's really good with visual effects, but at the time, a creative storyteller. And he, I guess you could say he mastered that with the Lord of the Rings series. For me personally, I I like Heavenly Creatures better than than those movies, just because it's more interesting to me as a story. You know, it's more personal. More personal. He was, even though he really. Um, it, a lot of what happens on screen with the with the fantasy element is they have the real world world morph into this fantasy world into this fantasy realm where the the real world sort of physically changes before your eyes into the, into this fantasy kingdom, and the reason that he got that idea because he was trying to be really authentic. He wanted to do justice to to the story and to really have the authentic, genuine facts. And so he went and interviewed a lot of her their schoolmates and a lot of their their people who knew them at the time. He wanted to get it right. He even filmed it was actually they. In the filmed in the actual schoolroom where the girls went to school, he went back and had that schoolroom re- redecorated into the into the time of the era. But anyway, he found a photograph where they where they made their little plasticine, their little clay characters that they that they that they made to to represent their figurines that they made to to illustrate their story. And that's where he got the idea to have these plasticine characters come to life on screen because of that photograph that he had seen of their little clay figures that they had built up of their of their fictional fic, fictional creations that they had invented wow what t- what time period 1950 54 i think yeah. oh okay um i am familiar with ann perry yeah that's the novelist yeah i i've yeah. seen her book yeah. that's interesting i have to see the movie I've i want you to it. see it now and now we're gonna have to watch that tomorrow yeah definitely, definitely. i showed it to uh, emma of course it totally blew her mind <laughs> she loved it <laughs> But, um, I wish my mind were blown that easily these days. I wish I could go back to being 15. I know it's great. She's so cute. She went back. She's to, awesome. She went, but rushed back to see um, Gravity again with her friends today. What did her friends think of it? They loved it. They loved awesome. it. And she said the only way she could get them to see it was that it featured a gender bending role, meaning that it's it's about a woman in a in a spaceship who's actually the main character of the film. Imagine that. She's, she's in not charge a, of her own story. Yeah, she's not the wife or the girlfriend. She's not having sex. She's not naked. She's actually a real person. It's really shocking. <laughs> she's not naked, but she does have a Ripley moment when she goes down bitched about to her underwear. And she, talk about MILF. My gosh, Sandra Bullock looks fantastic. Did you it's see it? It's a Ripley right? moment, but it's not... I don't know if Teresa had the same reaction. I didn't find it sexual at all. I thought it made her vulnerable, but it didn't make her... It, it, it wasn't... It, it wasn't... I don't know. It's not like her nipples were hard or anything. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> well, we were imagining if Scarlett Johansson had been in the role, how different right. it would have been. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, right. If she, was she offered the part? 
Yeah, she was originally going to, uh, it was either her or Natalie oh. Portman. It was one of the two. But, but Teresa, my sister kept saying it was like Barbarella meets 2001 no, or something even, like that. And, not even at all. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to me. I didn't think that because it's a, it's, a, it's a similar scene, but the purpose of it is exactly the opposite. I know, and it, right. but to me, she yeah. didn't look... I mean, I've seen her look really sexy, and I don't think she looks sexy in this movie. She looks fine, you know, but she's not... It's not like Ridley Scott, you know, perching the camera below Sigourney Weaver's underwear crotch, you know, and her mound of those, Venus is, like, bulging from her panties. <laughs> those tiny, tiny little underwear that Ripley's <laughs> Tiny through. underwear and a tiny butt. You know, she's got, like, no ass. It's this tiny... She little... has no ass that all. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's not one of those. There's no eroticizing of her. I didn't find. Right. I guess She's I'm not. Beautiful, I didn't, but it's really, not, it's I not whacking material. Right. I don't want to say that. <laughs> make it sound like I was whacking off to gravity either. I wasn't. But I'm just saying Sandra Bullock looks fantastic. That yeah. she can take she off does. all her clothes. Agreed. She still looks great. And yeah. she's almost fifty. God. Yeah. I'm ashamed. How about a movie led by a 50-year-old woman who's in charge of her own story making, what, almost $60 million at the box office in October? I know. So fuck you, Hollywood. You were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there you go. But back to this crazy year. Um, Lion King was the number one film of 1994. And that's sort of the beginning of children family films taking over the box office. And three songs from The Lion King were nominated and the one that won was Can You Feel the Love Tonight? But also Circle of Life and Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Believe me, if you lived through this a- a year, you would have remembered all those horrible songs. <laughs> no, that's so mean. No, they're not horrible, but you know what I mean. Like, uh, No, that was yeah. the one film I have not, I have not, I have not seen The Lion King. Oh, it's really cute. It. It's a cute movie. That's, you know, because it kind of reminded me just of the previews of, of Kemba. I grew up watching Kemba as a kid. I know. I'm and, gonna, I, and I said to myself, this is Kemba. So that's I have probably to sh- why I didn't... I'm going to show it to I, you, though, Michael. I'm going to make you watch Lion King, too. Um, the second movie was Forrest Gump, was number two of that year in the box office. True Lies was number three. Uh, the Mask, number four. That The Mask with Jim Carrey. And mm-hmm. Speed was number five. The Flintstones, ugh. And then Dumb and Dumber, Four Weddings and a Funeral was number eight, Interview with a Vampire, Clear and Present Danger, Disclosure, Pulp Fiction, Stargate, The Santa Claus, Maverick, ah, these movies, The Specialist, Legends of the Fall, Wolf, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and Star Trek Generation. So box office is kind of taking a crap right about now. That's, it's like the shitty movies are really rising to the top. Uh, I'm not sure why. Yeah, and you have to blame the audiences for that. There's no one else to blame except the audiences who pay to see that shit. Yeah. You know, and the marketing people at the studios who make you who who sell you the Flintstones based on the people who are familiar with the cartoon, and it's totally the movie's totally nothing like that. Mm. I could never have imagined in a million years that they would have a live action movie called The Flintstones. I of anything, why couldn't it have done a big animated version of it? That was completely like a joke to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, me too. But, you know, the interesting thing about women at the box office in this time is that Demi Moore was getting a lot of acclaim for being strong at the box office. But what she was getting acclaim for, the kind of roles she was playing, were these kind of sex, sexed up characters. And then and that, you know, is sort of the old um, basic instinct idea of female strength. And what I think about that is that eventually that doesn't lead to a, a healthy future uh, of for women 
stories because how much farther can you can you can go? You just have to keep getting sexier, prettier, more psycho, you know. But you're not really a real person. You're just kind of this weird symbol. You can become Laura Croft. Yeah. And that's sort of where it looks like that the women are heading during this era. Why is it that women take a beating when it comes to but to movie roles? It's like there's why does Hollywood all of a sudden become numb when it comes to women's roles? Like men get great roles, but when it comes to women, they just kinda of get lost. Well it's become really bad now, but well, as we're watching these Oscar years, we're seeing why. Because movies, the good movies starring women, there were they were being made. They just weren't making any money. Nobody wanted to see them. So if those movies don't make money, nobody's nobody in Hollywood's going to go and make any more of those movies. They're not going to stand behind them just to do the right thing. Like Can I say, instance, I don't want to oversimplify, but 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 I will anyway. <laughs> that <laughs> uh, women will go see a movie if it features a leading man or a leading woman. But men have a resistance to going to see movies that, that that feature leading women. For some reason, men think they don't want to go see a chick flick. Women will go see any movie that's a great movie. Men have a resistance to to seeing movies that that only feature women because they think it makes them look not Probably masculine true. or something. And so you lose half your audience right there. Unless, depending on the subject matter of the film, though. Yeah, exactly. Like Gravity is an exception because men will go see it because it's uh, about astronauts. Well, you know what's a good movie is that didn't... I don't know if it made any money that year was Reality Bites came out in 94. And that is a movie about a young woman, Winona Ryder. And that was sort of the height of her popularity before she hit a decline. But uh, And she also did Little Women, Little Women that year, Winona Ryder. So she was having a pretty good time of it before things started to fall apart for her. And people were making movies with her in mind and they were getting made because of Winona Ryder. Little Women didn't get a Best Picture nomination. Reality Bites was all but ignored. Uh, you know, so what I'm saying about that is that those movies were still being made. They just weren't they weren't floating to the top of the box office. People weren't going to see them, sadly. Mm-hmm. And Scorsese had already recognized what Winona Ryder had to offer because he shows her to star in Age of Innocence. Right. So, so when you have and 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 then a few years earlier she had done what Heather's was it Heather's nineteen like eighty seven I think eighty seven or eighty eight yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Coppola had her in Dracula too and wanted her for Godfather three. Right. Exactly right. right. That's right. There you go. Yeah. She, was she actually was she actually filmed um, some parts in um, Godfather three, but she got sick. Right. Was it sick or was it her breakup with Johnny Depp? Well, she said it was exhaustion. Right. So almost like a breakdown. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, things are bad for women in, in Hollywood. They just are right now. But I think it's going to change because after this year with Sandra Bullock and last year with uh, Jessica Chastain and Zero Dark Thirty, they can't really say women can't carry movies and open movies anymore now with those two. There I mean, you go. Sure, That's they fine. were masculine subjects. You know, they were subjects men would want to see and wouldn't feel like Ryan's saying, wouldn't feel embarrassed going to see them. You know, because they're mm-hmm. not considered women's movies, but so what? They're still women in the roles. Yeah. Well, the health girls did very well there. too, Sasha. What? The, well, the health did very well too, and that's a woman's film. The health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that's almost entire. When I went to see The Help, I was like the only guy in the audience. I'm not kidding. I saw it like the first day or two that it opened. And it was like it was like all these women who had read the book in their book clubs and stuff. And they all showed up in, in groups of women together to right. see that movie. Women are a pretty powerful demographic. But yeah. they still can't drive a movie way up there. you know. And yeah. those movies like The Help are hard to get made. But that had a built-in yeah. audience already because of you know the Oprah f- faction and mm-hmm. interest in it. So... They they can still get made. They're just not made with. I mean, Michael, you remember when Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway and you know um, all of those really strong actresses from the '60s and '70s. God, even going all the way back to Betty Davis and Catherine Hepburn and you know all about Eve and movies like that where women were strong. Joan Crawford, you know, they were strong, powerful forces at the box office for men or women. It didn't matter that they were strong, powerful forces, and that has changed. There there are no women like that anymore, really. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the difference from a lot of the stars today, from the stars of the golden era. You know, they were a lot of them were very strong, independent women from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and stuff. Nowadays, they're not. They're 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 women now who depend on someone else other than being their own, on their own independent force. You know, um, mm-hmm. you have strong characters like Joan Crawford and. Um, Betty Davis, Captain Hepburn, um, all these great, great actresses who really stood independent in their film. They were the lead, and the men were secondary. You know, and today it's very rare to see a lot of strong, strong actresses because we have people like Jennifer Lawrence and um, um, Scarlett Johansson that, to a lot of people, are not, not strong outside of the film industry. I mean, outside of films, they're not. St- they don't seem strong, you know. Right. They don't have that force that those actresses did. Like even even um, Jane Fonda and Meryl Streep, um, Diane Keaton. These are strong, independent women, and we don't have that now. I wonder if part of it is that in, in World War II, so many men were away from home in America, and it left the women back in America. To, the women had to be in charge in America. The women were left in charge of the families. They were left in charge of, they were the Rosie the Riveter types, you know. And so women uh, found their strength in the 1940s and early 50s. But then when, when after the guys all came back from the war and we entered the Eisenhower era, it was all about being a homemaker. Right. Finding a family and becoming a wife you know, and becoming a homemaker. So, Michael, we, I just have to ask you one thing. We we all said what our favorite three favorite movies of the year were, but you never said what yours were. Well, Ed Wood is definitely my top. Um, I would have to say um, Shawshank. I love that film. And my mind is complete blur after that. I don't remember. You mentioned a couple of films, and, but I can't remember. Maybe I didn't go to a lot of movies that year. Well, Pulp Fiction, Nell, Bullets Over no, Broadway. No, Pulp Fiction is not my all-time favorite. I, I like the film, but I, I, I didn't gravitate to it a lot. I don't see it that much on video. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know Legends why. Legends of the Fall. The There's Legends of the Fall, Wyatt Earp, uh, Speed. Hate it, Wyatt Earp. <laughs> Clear and Present Danger, uh, The Mask, True Lies, um, Forrest Gump. So. I have to say then, Mask. I love Mask. I, I love that film. Oh, The Mask. Like I said, Mask. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm, the Mask I'm, with Jim Carrey. I'm having a, um, I'm having a mental meltdown right now. Oh, my I'm, God. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember, but if I had to pick one, 
I can't. I can only name mention um, Ed Wood and um, Shawshank. All right. Well, that's fair enough. Um, uh, we should say really quickly as we're closing out because we're at the two-hour mark. If I can, if we can actually, I'll have to cut a lot of that out. Um, the Blue, White, and Red by Kieslowski. Those three movies. Uh, they were kind of a big deal at the time. You don't hear a lot about them now, but I would highly recommend seeking them out and watching all three of them. For me, I remember them in kind of a blur. I remember that Juliette Binoche is in one and um, beautiful Julie Delpy is in another. I think Julie Delpy's in white and Juliette Binoche is in blue. Yeah. And uh, who's in red? Oh, that, that brown-haired, that beautiful brown-haired French woman. <laughs> I can't but those movies are great, so see them. They're all and blue was the first one that came out, I believe. It was blue, white, and red, I believe. That's how it came out. Yeah. The, when the movies I named as my three favorite were all American movies, but if I were, were to name my three favorite foreign films that year, it probably would be Red and Chunking Express, which was Wong Kar Wai, and uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Yeah. Mm, great. No, I, I wanted to say that when you mentioned about the, the women in the 40s, I strange that you had had mentioned that because there was a period right before the war, or right during the war, the women were very strong and stuff. But after the war, actresses took on the housewife role. And even the even the um, film noirs, if you watch them, um, there's a they the heroine changed from being strong and independent prior to the war and after the war she became sort of like the damsel. Um, she mm-hmm. needed the support of the man. And so I, it's funny that you had mentioned that, how during the war, the women were the ones left behind. They had to be mother, father. They had to work, take care of the family. But right after the war ended, it, there was a change in Hollywood for the actresses. They became, once again, the, the wife, the mother, the woman who needed the man to support them instead of the strong, independent women that she was prior to to um almost as if Hollywood, almost as if hollywood was saying okay enough of you got of your girls being in charge now the men are back in charge and so we're going to yeah, we're going to show exactly. you how to do that we're going to we're going to set we're going to give you some role models to follow some new kinds of role models and it is, was that yeah and it was that period where actresses started to fight for roles Mm-hmm. I really love our commenters. You guys should read them um, uh-huh. for this year. They're really great. They're you know they're they're really in depth about this year. They have you know a lot of them have ranked have ranked the movies um, of the '90s. And we were asked what our favorite movie of the '90s was, um, and they also wanted us to talk about. Does anybody remember the movie The Last Seduction? Yes. The Last Seduction yes. with, with um, Linda, Linda Fiorentino, something like that. Yeah, and it wasn't uh-huh. eligible for the Oscars, and they wanted us to discuss that uh, that movie. And then someone on the comment section said that it had been released on cable prior, and that's why it wasn't eligible, and so it didn't get in the race. But it was it was a big deal at the time, that movie, The Last Seduction. I wanted I to really mention Red Rock, Red Rock West the year before, which is the same um, director, John Dahl. Similar kind of film, neo-noir kind of picture. But it, Last Seduction was was um, really made the art house rounds. It was it was huge in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it crossed over into the mainstream, but it um, it, it was the, it was a super smart movie. Hmm. Well, the actress in the film, she won, I believe, the New York Film Critics Circle Award, and when she won that. Award, Award, they were really fighting for her to get an Oscar nomination. And um, I think it changed now because I believe now films 
a lot of films have been released on cable prior to film release now. Um, I think HBO does it or Showtime does it because I've seen some at, at my parents' house, I've seen films that are being introduced on cable prior to their, their release date. I don't know if it's still mm -hmm. true or not, but I just but I remember when that film came out, she won the New York, she won that um, prize, and they were fighting her to get an Oscar nomination, and she didn't get it. There was a big upset about it, but she was, I think, if she had been nominated, she was like the front. Yeah, she, well, you're I, right. She did win the New York Film Critics Circle Award, and she won the New York, she won the London Film Critics Award too, and John Dahl won a couple of awards for Best Director also from the. Um, he won the L.A. Film Critics uh, Award. John Dahl did. I know it was the New Generation Award, not for Best Director, but he won something called the New Generation Award. So it was getting some attention, but it just wasn't eligible, right? Is that the situation? It wasn't eligible. It, it just showed, right. Yeah. They probably wouldn't have gotten any Oscar attention anyway, though, knowing the Academy. But um, but it's hard to pick for me a movie, my favorite movie of the 90s. I mean, Fargo is from the 90s. So is Silence of the Lambs, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, those two movies are, are really hard to choose, which I like better. A lot of great movies in the 90s. Do you guys have any? Does anybody here have a, a favorite movie of the 90s? Oh, it's Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's to, to narrow down a hundred movies from from the entire decade. It's really really hard to choose just one. The name, who you name, would have to there. Pulp Fiction would have to be up there. The Usual Suspect. Oh yeah. Probably one of my top five favorite movies of the night. Silence of the Lambs is my is, is like my favorite from the nineties. One of them, you know. Oh, uh, I and know. I like I like the English Patient. I like the English Patient. I love that film. Oof. I can't wait to get to that year. L.A. Confidential. Ellie Confidential, I would have to name. Ellie Confidential is another one. one. You've been listening to episode 47 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com with special guest Michael Gray. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode, 1995.